The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For this final session this morning. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the way that you have worked already today. Uh, God, I have been richly filled, and I have been so blessed to hear all the details about who you are and how you operate. God, I pray specifically thanking you for your Holy Spirit and the way that you have caused him to work and that you have released him to do what he does in our hearts and in our lives. God, I pray that today each and every one of us who know you would be strengthened by what we have heard and what we will hear in a moment. And God, I pray knowing that what I'm about to say is by far the most divisive thing that has been said today. And God, I pray that it would not be divisive here, that it would be something that causes us to think carefully but not divide, that there would be no sinful motives in my heart or in the heart of any hearer here today, but that we would humbly bow ourselves before you, seeking to know truth from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, before we jump in to the specific outline, I want to first begin by focusing on four preliminary observations about what I'm about to say. First of all, this is, as I mentioned already, definitely going to be the most divisive of the things we've discussed so far today because it is a highly controversial issue. There are many faithful believers who hold very different points of view when it comes to the spiritual gifts, which is our focus for this topic. It's very possible that you who are hearing this message today hold a different position than the one that I'm about to espouse right now. And if that's the case, please know this is not intended to be an attack on anyone. Our desire is simply to seek to understand God's word as clearly and as plainly as possible. So I welcome any questions or concerns and would love to discuss this further. That's what I love to do. Uh, this I would just delight in having as much feedback as you want to give and discussing these things ad, ad nauseum. It'd be wonderful. Uh, the second preliminary observation is this. This is also the least important of the four sessions that we're going to hear today in the sense that this is not a salvation issue. It is very important to understand that the other three sermons that we have heard about today all deal with things that are vital for our salvation. If you do not believe in the person of the Holy Spirit, if you do not believe in him accurately as the third person of the Trinity, then you are not a Christian. You cannot be saved if you do not believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. If you do not believe that the person of the Holy Spirit is active in saving you, if it is God that saves you through the work of the Holy Spirit, it is likely, maybe even probable, that you don't actually understand the gospel well enough to be saved. If you do not have the onworking sanctif uh, ongoing work of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit in your life, according to the scripture, you are not saved. These are very vital things that we understand. But then when we come to this passage... There are a few edge cases that we might mention later that people can venture off into heresy, but for the most part, these things are acceptable within the framework of faithful Christianity. There is room for debate and discussion and disagreement within the Christian faith surrounding these issues. So preliminary observation number two, this is probably the least important of the four issues preached about today. However, point number three, and in contrast to that, this is a very important issue. It's common for Baptists like ourselves to have a very underbaked 
pneumatology. Our response to the question of what do you believe about the Holy Spirit, or at least the way I've often heard it, is I'm not Pentecostal. That's not a pneumatology. But it is very important for us to understand the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We need to know what we are supposed to be doing in terms of our relationship with the Lord and one another. And the scripture teaches us how to do that. We need to know exactly what we are called to do and how the Spirit empowers us. If you add up all of the Bible verses in the New Testament and you you take all of the things that teach about the person of the Holy Spirit and all of the scriptures that teach about the way that the Holy Spirit works in salvation and all of the scriptures that talk about the way the Holy Spirit works in sanctification and you put them all on one page and then you add up all of the passages that talk about the, the gifts of the Spirit, there are more verses about the gifts of the Spirit than there are about all of the others combined. And there's a reason for that. The main reason being People often get this wrong. Particularly, we see this happening in the Church of Corinth. They didn't understand it. Go figure, the Church of Corinth is messing everything up. That's just what they seem to do. Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, he says, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And I believe he also wants us to be informed about what these spiritual gifts are and how they are supposed to operate. So my hope today is that we're going to become much more robust in our pneumatology concerning the gifts of the Spirit, that our church might have a solid foundation so that we know why it is that we operate in the way that we do here and not in the way that other churches operate in other places. Fourthly, and finally in these preliminary observations, this is a huge topic, and much like many of these others, we are going to have to race through it very rapidly. Has anybody here, anybody else ever read... The, I think it's called the, the A Thousand and One Tales of the Arabian Nights. Has anyone else read that? I read this growing up, and there's this one really fascinating, really interesting story about this room. It's, a, it's, it's a, called the House of a Thousand Closets. Has anyone heard of this? They left it out of the Aladdin movie, probably for a reason. But to me, as a child, it just filled me with imagination. And each room had something really mystical and magical and interesting in it, right? But they only open like a couple in the story. Well... You always want to know what's in the other ones, right? Today, what we're basically going to be doing as we race through this is kind of going to be like moving through the House of a Thousand Closets, and we're going to open a door, we're going to walk in, we're going to get a glimpse, and we're going to look around as quickly as we can and get a snapshot of what's in that miraculous, amazing, incredible place, and then have to back out and move into the next one. So we are going to move through this Pretty rapidly, all of these things deserve much more attention, but I'm hoping this is just to be a conversation starter for us, and hopefully a a beginning point, like a diving board for you to begin personal study. So we're going to hope that the Lord will use this very basic approach to begin the work of edification of the church here and encouraging us as his people. So it's always important when you begin discussing things like this to make sure we're on the same page by defining our terms. So before we even make it to our outline, let me first explain where our church sits on the grand spectrum of all the different ways you can approach the gifts of the Spirit. At its most basic, if we were to boil it down to the simplest possible division, which I think for me is helpful, I need to do that, there are really two major camps of thought when it comes to the spiritual gifts. Every Christian is standing under one of these two umbrellas, and you either believe that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still active, still operating in some way, shape, or form, or you believe that they have, at least in some part, ceased. 
And for us at our church, we stand under the second umbrella. Those who believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit are still active are called continuationists, obviously because the gifts continue. And those who believe that they have ceased are called cessationists. As you can probably tell from this and many other aspects of theology, theologians are very utilitarian and bad at naming things. They are very rarely creative. Under each of these umbrellas of thought... There's a broad spectrum. We could talk about a lot of different ways that there's a differentiation between what's going on under the continuationist side. For example, they go all the way from the far end of the spectrum, which is the idea that everyone must use the gifts of the Spirit or they are not saved. For example, there is the belief in the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that says that you must believe in the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit, begin speaking in tongues, or there is no evidence that you have Christ in you at all and you are not saved if you have not had this experience. And then other people under this same umbrella would be people we've already quoted this morning in other sermons. They would be in this more cautious but kind of open perspective. People like John Piper, who we respect and we often we often quote here. There are many people who are in the continuationist under that umbrella that we we respect and we think highly of. But we do disagree with them, and we believe that there are some reasons biblically to do that. Even within the cessationist camp, there are different groups of people. There are some, for example, who believe all of the gifts without qualification have ceased, while others believe that only the sign gifts have ceased. And we'll look at that a little bit more carefully later on. We here at Redeeming Grace Fellowship, we are cessationists, and we believe that the gifts have come to change over the course of time. They have ceased in part. And we'll explain that more further as we get towards the end of today's message. What we're going to do for our outline is just try to answer a few of the basic questions that I think need to be asked in order to understand what the gifts of the Spirit are. We'll begin with the question of, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? There seems to be a great deal of confusion in our modern age about what this is and how it operates according to the New Testament. Question number two is, what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Just at face value, how can we define them? Thirdly, what is biblical New Testament prophecy? Once again, there's a great deal of debate concerning this question. Fourthly, what is biblical speaking in tongues? Fifth, what is biblical healing? And and finally, sixth, what are some biblical arguments for cessationism? We'll begin with point number one, question number one, that is, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? How many of you have heard this term used in a church service other than here at our church? You've heard this. This is an important thing to know what it means. This is a very important thing because of all of the things, like I said before, this really doesn't deal with salvation much. This question can very much deal with salvation. And this question, if misunderstood, can lead you in the direction of heresy. So we begin with this question because this is where so much of the modern confusion about spiritual gifts actually lands here. It begins here. If you get this wrong, everything else will also be wrong. There are many who believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that takes place subsequent to salvation. It is a second act of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Perhaps you've called, heard it called the second blessing before. It's the belief that once you're saved, you are then made right with God. And if you died, you'd, you would go to heaven. However, you don't have the Holy Spirit in you yet. 
all of those things that Mike was talking about the Spirit doing, and all of those, or at least half of them, and all the things that Steve was talking about the Spirit doing and making you have the mind of Christ, they would argue none of that happens until the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place, because although you have been redeemed, you have not yet been filled with the newness of the Holy Spirit. That must come later. Most people who believe this way hold to a doctrine that, that we mentioned early, earlier, the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they argue that those who are filled with the Spirit will always give evidence by using the gift of speaking in tongues, which is the evidence that they are now indwelt by the Spirit of God. Here's the problem with that idea, the entire idea of the second blessing. It is not only unbiblical, it finds no place in the pages of Scripture. It also undermines the entire reality of what salvation actually is. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, which as we saw earlier, is another way to say the Holy Spirit, they do not belong to Christ. Those are not my words. That's the Bible. In other words, if someone does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, they are not saved. We read in Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, and Luke 3.16, the exact same quote from John the Baptist, word for word, for word verbatim across the three accounts, says the same thing. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. According to John 4, 2, Jesus didn't baptize anyone with water. He gave that, that ministry to his disciples. And I think that's a really important thing for a lot of reasons. One of which is, can you imagine the uh, hierarchy that would have existed in the church if people were saying, you know how later it's like, well, I was baptized by Paul, so therefore I'm a great Christian. Can you imagine? Well, I was baptized by Jesus. I'm greater than all of you. I'm thankful that Jesus didn't. Uh, he handed that over to his disciples to perform that ministry. He never baptized anyone with, with water. But there was a promise that he would baptize people. And what way would he do that? There are those that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And in and I, my perspective, I believe that what he's speaking here about fire is not the gift of speaking in tongues, but the gift of, uh, the actually not a gift, but judgment. So the Holy Spirit will either come to give life or to give judgment. According to uh, John 4, 2, as we saw, he is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. It's important to remember what the word baptize means and what it does not mean. It simply means to dunk under or to immerse. If you take a basketball and go to the beach and you try to sink it by laying on top of it and shoving it under the water, you are baptizo, that ball. You are pushing it under the water. You are baptizing it. You are immersing it into that water. In other words, the promise that Jesus was making is I am going to take you who are separate and far from the Holy Spirit, and I am going to dunk you under. So you are completely surrounded by this Spirit of God. The one that is far from you, I am going to place you in such a position of intimacy that you are surrounded by him. That is the picture that we are given about, about Christ putting us into the Holy Spirit. That is incredible news. That should fill us with joy and with hope and with thankfulness to God. We who were far off are now completely immersed in him. The question is, when does that happen? And the answer is simple. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers the moment that they are saved. We already heard a little bit about this earlier from Pastor Mike. We see this clearly in passages like Galatians chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. 
Let me read these words to you, but as I do, I want you to listen really intently to what I'm saying. Think carefully about these words, about how and when the Holy Spirit indwelt these New Testament believers. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, the Holy Spirit arrives and indwells you at exactly the same time that you hear with faith. Now, I don't know anybody, Pentecostal or otherwise, who would argue that you are saved without hearing and faith. Those things are clear in the scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our salvation requires that we, we respond to God in faith. So when does the Holy Spirit indwell you? When are you baptized into the Holy Spirit? At the same moment that you hear with faith. So we see, to wrap up point number one, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with what it means to be saved. It is an element or an aspect or one small part of the entire massive process we talked about when we talk about being made a new creation in Christ. Steve was explaining that there's a part of you that was dead. Your spirit is now made alive with Christ and the spirit of God indwells you and comes into you. Every single believer has the Holy Spirit living in them and therefore has the power to live for God. So far, this is incredible news. Excellent, excellent news. So then we come to point number two. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Here, uh, we come to another very divisive issue. And it's important to see that the New Testament offers us a lot of information about this. In fact, there are four lists that are given to us, and all of these lists are different from one another. And none of them, I don't think, is intended to be exhaustive, as clearly expressed in the fact that they differ from one to another. But if you combine all of the lists, you come away and arrive with the following results. I'm just going to accumulate them for you and plop them down in your laps this way. You have apostles, which are mentioned in two lists, prophets or prophecy, which are mentioned in three lists. And then you have evangelists, distinguishing between spirits. You have teachers, pastors or teachers. Uh, they all kind of put together exhortation, miracles, healing, service, Helps, those two are probably one thing. Leading or administrating, those probably are one thing. Tongues or languages. Interpretation of tongues. Giving, faith, and mercy. These are all gifts that are mentioned in the list together about what it means to be given gifts of the Spirit. These gifts are not merely natural abilities. Everyone who is born has some kind of natural inclination. My daughter loves to sing. She, I think, is going to be a good singer someday. I don't know where she got that from. She's got this talent that is innate in her that is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. She does not yet know Christ in a saving way. She's not indwelt by the Spirit. So it's important to understand this. God gives talents to every person alive. That is not the same as talking about the gifts of the Spirit that are developed by God working in you in a unique way. You will occasionally see somebody who gets saved later in life and all of a the sudden they begin to desire to do things they have never desired to do for the first 65, 70 years of their existence. And all of a the sudden they begin to develop these kinds of giftings to serve the body, not because they are now understanding this is how God originally made me, but the Spirit of God is using them with gifting that is new to their experience in this life. 
So it's important to understand talents and spiritual gifting are uniquely separate. All spiritual gifts are given sovereignly by God, and they are dispensed according to his good pleasure. It's not like a smorgasbord of choices that you can simply come to like we had for lunch today, and it's like, which kind of cookie do I actually want? No, that's not how it works when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. God is the one who gives them to you, as we see clearly mentioned repeatedly through the chapter 12 of Romans and chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. They say over and over and over that it is God who decides who receives these gifts. Both of those chapters remind us that our gifting is not something that is designed to puff us up. It is not something that we are to stand on and say, see how great a Christian I am because I am able to serve in these ways. Instead, we are gifted with these gifts of the Spirit in order to build up the body of Christ. So that is their purpose. Also, we notice there will be counterfeits. Now, there are a lot of ways that we could look at it in the Scripture to see that there will be fake expressions of the gifts of the Spirit. We don't have time to explore this thoroughly, although I think it is important to understand this. But let me just take you to one of the very clear examples of this in the New Testament from the mouth of Jesus himself, Matthew 7, 22 through 23, a very commonly quoted passage in our church. He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we know this passage. What does he say? Did we not prophesy in your name? That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works? Remember, miracles is in one of the lists there about the gifts of the Spirit. Did we not do these things in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, there will be people that we can, from the outside, look at and say, it appears as though they have a form of the expression of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit. But there are many who will express these things and appear to have them, which on the last day Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. That is an important thing to understand for us today. Dr. Tom Schreiner says it well when he wrote, The Lordship of Christ is the criterion by which the gifts are assessed. If somebody is acting upon a gift, they are presenting themselves as having a gift, yet they do not have Christ as their king. They are not living in accordance with his law and his commands. Then it declares to us, this is counterfeit. It is not real. All of our Christian gifts are designed to work for the glory of God, and all of them are meant for the good of our brothers and sisters in the church. So 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 describes the purposes of the gifts this way. Now, Sometimes when you listen to a long group of sentences together from the Bible, you miss the key phrase. I want you to hear this very carefully, so I'm going to speak it very slowly and point out one of the most significant things I think we need to understand today about the Spirit's working in the gifts. It says this, Now there are varieties of gifts. And we can say amen to that. But there is the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but there is the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. So here's the, here's the key right here, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. 
If you read 1 Corinthians 12 carefully, you will know from the context, both before and after, this common good is the common good of the body of Christ. This means these gifts are for the benefit of the entirety of the church. So as we begin to step out of this room and step into another room here in this hall of closets, we need to leave by defining spiritual gifts as sovereignly designated spiritual assistants to excel in a particular area of ministry for the common good of building up the body of Christ. That's what spiritual gifts are. Which brings us now to the third closet in this long hallway. And I I think this one is probably, of all the ones that I could just spend a lot of time on today, I think this one perhaps is the one which is most misunderstood out of all of these in our context as as Baptists and in our time in this uh, period of the church. And the question is, what is biblical New Testament prophecy? It's important for us to understand what prophecy is, and so we're actually going to begin at a place of theological agreement. In fact, I think almost everybody within Christendom actually agrees on what Old Testament prophecy is. What is Old Testament prophecy? It is God giving a message directly to an individual, a prophet, who will then relay that information to people. And they do this because they are God's words, and therefore they can't be wrong. Consider the words about the prophet Samuel. It is written about him, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. This is an idiom to explain Everything that he prophesied actually came to pass. No falling words. They also talk about that in Joshua, that every one of them stood, that every one of them were fulfilled. So it's important for us to see that prophets tell the truth. They actually say what is in accordance with what God says. None of them failed. In fact, under the Mosaic law, they were required to kill false prophets. Consider what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you uh, tells you comes to pass, and if he says, "Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let them let us serve them," you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So pause for a second. In other words, what he is saying here is, if somebody actually does tell you a prophecy and it actually does come true. It doesn't mean they're a prophet from me because then they will tell you, let's go worship a false God that will tell you they're not actually a real prophet. In other words, a prophet must not only tell you the truth about what is coming. They might might even give you a, a sign or a wonder that doesn't indicate that they are actually saved. They must also stand on what the Bible already teaches, what God has already revealed. And he says, for for the Lord, your God is testing you. God will actually test us by sending us, on occasion, false forms of prophecy. That's happened throughout the Old Testament, and everyone agrees upon this. He says he does this to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So you shall walk after the Lord your God, and you shall fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. This is to contrast it against false prophets. And you will serve him, and you will hold fast to him, But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, what shall happen to him, he shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way of the Lord which God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge evil from your midst. What do you do to a false prophet? You kill them. 
Uh, when I was growing up in uh, a charismatic Pentecostal church in Kansas, uh, many of you will remember Y2K. It was like a big terrifying thing that never happened. In our church, people would prophesy on a relatively regular basis about how you needed to bury food or take your money out and make sure you cash it into gold and bury it somewhere that nobody knows about it. My pastor, even in one of his sermons, I remember, actually talked about how he buried on some random guy's farm. He's like, I won't tell you where it is or whose it is, but he took guns and money and he buried them because of the prophecies being spoken at our church. Because we are not under the Mosaic Covenant any longer, we do not enforce the death penalty for false prophets. You see, they don't do that in the New Testament. They don't do that because the Old Covenant law of Moses was for a particular people of a particular time that is no longer enforced now. But please understand, this is important. If we were living under the Old Covenant, a lot of the people in my church growing up would be dead because false prophets are a big deal. False prophecy is a major problem, and God is not pleased with false prophecy. False prophets are constantly condemned throughout the Old Testament. I'll just give you one example out of the hundreds that exist. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes, because they speak visions from their own minds, and not from the mouth of God. That's going to be an interesting qualifier that we'll come to understand more later. It is evident that this kind of prophecy, the prophecy that... Um, it, is, it is evident that this kind of prophecy no longer exists. God does not speak directly to us like he did in the Old Testament. God is not giving new scripture, is he? Is the Bible continually being written? The answer is no. That's an important thing to know. There is nobody who is going to walk into our church next week and say, I have a letter to you from God. He, he is the one who has dictated this. You need to open your Bible and add this right after Revelation. This is the new book of the Bible. That is not how it works. This has come to a close. And everyone in Christendom, everyone who is a Christian, will agree with this. We have everything that we need for life and godliness within the pages of his word. So those who believe that their words are equal to or elevate above the Bible are dangerous people and they must be avoided. Unfortunately, many in the Pentecostal world are swept up into many false doctrines because of the fact that their leaders can claim that they have direct revelation from God. I want to give you an example. This was about three years ago. I was at a pastor's gathering here on Long Island, right about the time we started our church. And I was invited to go. It was, it was, you know, 30 minutes from here or so farther out east, and I was just sitting with a bunch of pastors that I had never met, didn't know any of them. And as I was talking with these people, one of the men there explained that he had not been living in accordance with the qualifications of a pastor. He realized and was clear in his own mind and heart that he should not be a pastor, and he had actually thought about resigning from being a pastor. But he said, you know what happened to me? I was taking a shower. And I heard God in an audible voice, as clearly as I'm speaking to you right now, say, you know what? You're right. You shouldn't be a pastor. In fact, the way that you've been living, you shouldn't even be part of the church. But you know what? I forgive you. And I want you to be the pastor. I don't want you to tell your church about these things. I want you to just keep going. In other words, he basically said, I don't need to repent. I don't need to confess my sin to anyone. I don't need to tell them. And the things that he was confessing to us were very serious matters. 
These were not minor issues of sin. They were major problems in ways that he had sinned against his church. But because he believed that God had spoken verbally to him, he could completely bypass all of what the scripture says pastors are supposed to be and how they are supposed to operate. That is very, very dangerous. And if you lead your church in such a way as to say, God told me something that he's never told you and is not in the pages of your scripture, that is a major problem. But most people do not fall into that category. Most people do not think that God is still speaking in the way the prophets of the Old Testament did. So historically, there were two positions. You had those who believed that prophecy continued and that God was still speaking, such as the Roman Catholic Church, who believes that God still speaks directly through the Pope. Or you had those who believed that the speaking of God had ended at the pages of Scripture. And so those were the only two options that existed for 1,900 years. Then roughly after that amount of time, modern theologians have now developed what they consider to be a middle road position. This has primarily been the work of Wayne Grudem, but has also been popularized by people like Sam Storms and John Piper, men that we love and respect. I think highly of all of these men and think that all of them have done far more for the kingdom of God than I will ever have the opportunity to do. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who is the primary kind of chief proponent of this philosophy, is a brother, and he I think he has impacted the church in major and important ways. So I don't intend this to be an attack on him or on any of those who adhere to these beliefs about prophecy. However, their position, which I'm about to explain, is not grounded in the Bible, and it can be easily problematic in leading people to further problems in the understanding of how to operate as a church. In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem pleads with folks like us in our camp by saying, I am asking those in the cessationist camp to give serious thought to the possibility that prophecy in ordinary New Testament churches was not equal to scripture in authority, but was simply a very human and sometimes particularly mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to somebody's mind. The problem is what he is describing here is not prophecy. That is not the way prophecy is ever described in the entire Old Testament. So how is it that you would now transition to something completely different when you're talking using the exact same language? The Bible never indicates that there will be this huge shift from prophecy being authoritative, thus says the Lord, to now being in a mixed bag of some of it's the Holy Spirit, some of it's the messed up mind of this guy who had a bad burrito for breakfast, and he's just kind of coming up with weird things at this point. How do you know what is true and what is not? And there is no visible shift, so I would argue that the burden of proof to, to reveal that there's some mag- magical shift that's taken place, the burden of proof is on those who define this differently, who have declared there is a change. In fact... I believe the evidence points in the opposite direction. The evidence reveals that prophecy still retains its authoritative position in the early church in the New Testament. For example, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says this. It, or it says that there are prophets and apostles and it puts them together. Earlier, Jim had this really great argument. He said, why in the world would you put the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together and unite them and place them as one kind of unit, as equal in authority, if they're not equal in authority? That would be wrong to do that. It would be misleading to do that. But also we see that the, the foundation of the church is built on what? 
the apostles and the prophets. We see that in Ephesians 2.20 and Ephesians 3.5 and further on in chapter 4, verse 2. And if you look at these things, those who disagree with us would say, well, the prophets is obviously speaking about the Old Testament. But we see clearly in chapter 3, verse 5, these are the prophets that are currently active in the church of that day. So we don't have time to explore this deeply, but just for the sake of fairness and not creating a straw man argument and trying to knock down a straw man on their behalf, I need to explain where the idea comes from. Wayne Grudem argues that the New Testament prophet Agabus was incorrect about some of the things that he prophesied. He prophesied to Paul saying, don't go to Jerusalem because if you go, they're going to be bound up and they're going to tie you up. The Jews are going to arrest you. And they're going to hand you over to the Romans. And he begins to explain these things. And they would argue he got some of his things wrong because it was the Romans who arrested Paul, not the Jewish people. He was bound up by the Romans, but not the Jewish people. However, if he got this wrong, then when Paul explains over and over and over and over in the New Testament that the Jews were responsible for the killing of Jesus, he got that wrong too. Because the Jews were not the ones who nailed him to the cross. They were not the ones who were, were putting the spear into his side or the thorns on his head. That was the Romans. Yet, in chapter 2 of Acts, they put the onus on the Jewish people standing around and say, You crucified. So who is right and who is wrong here? It's not that Agabus is saying that the Jewish people are physically going to be the ones wrapping up your hands. He's saying that they're going to be the ones who are, are causing your arrest, just like Paul indicates that Jesus' arrest was led to by the work of the Jews and carried out by the Romans. So it's important for us to understand something here, and that is that this is not an incorrect prophecy. All of Wayne Grudem's beliefs about prophecy, having the ability to be wrong, are based on this one presumption, which can be easily... Uh, I think taught because they're using bad hermeneutics to explain that this is not a failed prophecy, but an accurate one. And if Agabus was accurate, then their entire argument falls to pieces. So we don't have time to focus on that further, but it is a fascinating study for another time. So we'll simply close this door number three by saying that prophecy has always had the same definition. It is what happens when God speaks directly to an individual and that person reveals God's word to others. That is what prophecy is. That's what it always has been. So we come now to door number four. This one is probably the most tantalizing to those of us in the room, and it is the question of what is biblical speaking in tongues? Big question for our day. It's a big ticket item. However, we're just going to jump in and kind of out of this room much faster than we did with prophecy. Uh, Jonathan, uh, what is the word for language in Spanish? And what is the word for tongue in Spanish? Basically the same thing, right? In Greek, the same thing is true. In almost every language in the world, the same word for tongue and language is used. This is an important reality about how language operates. We see that the same is true in the Greek, that the fact is tongues and languages, these words are used, it is the same word. They're not even interchangeable. It's the same Greek word. So we see, for example, this really important thing taking place in Acts chapter 2. It is not that now all of these people are speaking in a bizarre, unknown, spiritual, heavenly language. They are instead speaking in actual languages that people from other places know about. Let's consider what it says in the Word of God, Acts 2, 4. 
and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Not just hearing in his own language, they're not speaking in this weird kind of bizarre monosyllabic repetition and then these people are interpreting it in their own hearing no it says that he was hearing them speak in other words their lips matched the sounds that were coming out of their mouth which were the languages that these people spoke and they were amazed and astonished saying are not all of these people who are speaking galileans Because Galileans, as everyone knew during this time, were not well educated in anything, much less the complex nature of learning many languages. And how is it that we each hear in our own native language? And then it explains to us where all these languages come from. Listen to the list. Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and even visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear all of them telling us in our own languages the mighty works of God. That is what tongues are. It is God using a supernatural act to overcome what he did for the world at Babel. He is reversing what took place when people rebelled against God and he divided everyone, and he is now using the supernatural gift to coalesce his own kingdom in the age of the church. So it is clear that tongues are human languages. Luke even lists the specific countries because he wants to highlight the amazing variety of languages that God was using to put into the mouth of the apostles. So now, as we move to 1 Corinthians, Paul is, he has this expectation that nobody is going to speak in a tongue unless somebody is able to understand that language that is being spoken and will interpret it for the rest of the body. So people will take this to be a little bit more supernatural than the Bible tends to make it. They will say, well, they're speaking in this monosyllabic repetition and this other person is getting an impression about what that is. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying if somebody doesn't know that tongue or that language, don't speak in that language because it's worthless and nobody is being built up or edified. It says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 28. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. So if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. If it's not going to benefit the body, don't do it. Paul argues that tongues are only for the purpose of building others up. However, the people at Corinth were failing to use the gifts according to their purposes. Surprise, surprise again, the Corinthians are still messing everything up. So Paul closes this section of his argument by saying, For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Why does he write that? Because the churches at Corinth were like crazy houses, and he was saying, you are acting in a way that is not like God. You are acting in a way that is very confused. In other words, if you were to walk into a church today where much of what is being practiced and called the gifts of tongues, first of all, there are no interpreters. 
There are no people that actually speak those languages. They're not actually speaking a language. Some people will say, how do you know it's not a language? I am not a linguist. I've taken enough linguistic classes to know that when you say the same monosyllabic repetition over and over and over and over and over, it is not actually a language. You are not speaking in a language. And so here what is important for us to understand is this is a kind of confusion the Bible condemns, not one that it encourages. So to put it gently, the monosyllabic repetition and mumbling and chattering that goes on in many Pentecostal circles today has nothing to do with biblical speaking in tongues. Earlier, Jim was saying to me in a private conversation, he was saying, I've had so many people over the years say to me, but it's in the Bible. And my response is, no, it's not. What you're talking about is not present within the pages of the scripture. So they fail to meet any of the criteria of biblical tongues. And because they're not languages, they can't ever be interpreted by anyone and are therefore worthless. So to close the door to this room, we must see that the gift of tongues was a supernatural ability to speak in other languages for the edification of the body. It was never considered a superior gift. However, it was often abused by the Corinthian churches because those who had the gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues lorded it over those who perceived that they had less important gifts. Which brings us now to door number five. As we walk out of that one, we didn't spend as much time as there as I would like to. But if you think we spent just a little bit of time there, we're really only going to peek our nose into the next room, which is the question of what is biblical healing. Now, we could do a lot of work here. We're going to just rapidly consider this quickly. I think it's important for us to understand that nobody ever gets better from any sickness without the work of God in their life. Nobody ever recovers from any illness unless God is the one operating in their body to protect them from death. Because the curse of death is over every single person and is constantly drawing people toward the grave. And the only thing standing between you and your last breath is that God is upholding you right now. And I think every Christian would agree with that. However, the idea that God is somehow going to miraculously heal is something we have to consider more carefully. Every healing comes from God, but there are occasions of miraculous healing taking place within the Bible. However, when we look at these miracles that took place in the New Testament era, they were not practiced by everyone. They were practiced by the apostles, and they are things that are not seen today. Miraculous healings, which are things that are abnormal and not normally seen. It's not something like somebody goes to the hospital and gets healed for it. They are things that are impossible without divine intervention. For example, Jesus takes a man who was born blind, spits on some dirt, sticks it in his eye sockets, and the man can now see. That is not medicine. That is a miracle. Or it's like telling Lazarus, who has been dead for days, get up and come out of the tomb. It's like Peter telling the man who was lame, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have I'm going to give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That is a miracle. When somebody has a cold or the flu and they are healed from it, I do believe that is God working in them, healing if we have prayed for them, but it is not 
miraculous healing. It is not the sign of what the New Testament is discussing. There has never been a verifiable healing in the last roughly 2,000 years of the church. There has never been an occasion where somebody has had a miraculous healing where it can be verified by medical personnel. And it is increasingly, or I would just say this, it is very interesting to me that as the rise of cell phone cameras has gone way up through the roof, the amount of people who say they have been miraculously healed goes further and further down. And I believe there's a reason for that because they are not verifiable cases. But that's not to say we don't pray for healing. We do. We pray that God would work in the body of an individual. We pray that as somebody is recovering, you do pray that God would cause them to be healed. But we are praying that God, in the way that he has naturally built our bodies to work, would cause our immune systems and our body to heal the way that he has naturally caused it to work. Remember, before the curse... People were designed to live forever. After the curse, people wear out and die pretty rapidly. We are but dust, and from dust we came, to dust we will return. It is important to see the Bible tells us in the New Testament to pray for the healing of people within the church. For example, James five thirteen through 14 says it this way, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let me pause for a second and just say one thing about that. If the gift of miraculous healing is what is in view in this text, none of the elders of this church should be elders because we do not have the gift of miraculous healing. And I would argue that none of the elders of any of the churches in the world should be elders if that is the qualification that is required because none of them have the gift of miraculous healing. This is not speaking here directly to miraculous healings, but the healing of the body which is expected and which we must rely on the Lord to do healing work in us. So the gift of healing is the miraculous gift of being able to supernaturally and instantaneously eradicate and otherwise incurable or unalterable disease or disability. That's what miraculous healing is in the New Testament. So now we reach our final question. We're going to close that door. I know we didn't get to spend a lot of time there. We're going to go on to the last one. And with the time that I have left, I am not going to make a thorough argument. Rather, I would just like to use the rest of my sermon, hoping that I will be able to kind of open a door to rich study for you. Um, We're going to consider the question, what are some biblical arguments for cessationism? Now, I admit that I'm going to borrow heavily from men like Tom Schreiner and Tom Pennington. They have excellent resources, both sermons and written materials. If you want to know some good material to dig deeper, I would gladly point you to their their, uh, much more thorough approach than mine. But what are some biblical arguments for cessationism? What are some biblical arguments that these kinds of gifts have come to an end, that they have ceased? As cessationists, we argue that the sign gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues and miraculous healing have come to a close. It does not mean that we believe the Holy Spirit is no longer working. It does not believe that we will never hope for the Holy Spirit to work in the healing of someone's body. We believe that nothing ever happens to impact our salvation or our sanctification or the kingdom of God at large apart from the exact important work of the Holy Spirit causing those things to take place. In other words, 
nothing good in the kingdom of God ever happens apart from the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit and his work. Perhaps you noticed something really interesting earlier when I read off the lists of all those gifts. When I explained that there are four lists in the New Testament speaking to what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. One of the, these lists come from many areas. They come from Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 has two of the lists, and then Ephesians chapter 4 has one of the lists as well. In two of those lists, half of the lists, the very first gift that is listed is the gift of being an apostle. What is that? What is the gift of being an apostle? I think Tom Schreiner gets it exactly right when he says many continuationists are actually cessationists when it comes to the gift of being an apostle. For they also believe that the gift of apostleship is, the, in the technical sense, has passed away. In other words, the people who argue that the gift of speaking in tongues still continues argue that one of the other gifts has come to a close. The New Testament gives us three requirements of what you must have in order to be an apostle. Acts chapter 1 verse 22 stipulates, quote, These men must become with us witnesses to his resurrection. In other words, apostles must have seen the resurrected Jesus. Men like Paul, who experienced him out of time when he experienced Jesus on the road to Damascus. Secondly, apostles are appointed directly by Jesus, not by the church like elders are. Acts chapter 1 verse 2 refers to the apostles as those whom Jesus himself had chosen. And later on, when they actually choose Matthias... When that takes place, they see that he's replacing Judas. They say not that he was chosen by Lot or by the disciples, but rather that he was chosen by Jesus himself. Thirdly, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, The sign of a true apostles, the signs of true apostles were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So what are the signs of a true apostle? Signs and wonders and mighty works. Apostles are going to have evidence of their apostleship. By doing miraculous things. Please understand, true apostles could perform miracles. Just like Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha and Jesus, the apostles' message was affirmed by their ability to do miraculous works. Nobody alive today could be an apostle based upon the three requirements they're giving. There are no people alive on the earth today who could meet those criteria. Nobody could even meet the first one. Do you see what this means? It means at least one of the gifts has ceased. It is important to note that there is never any specific reference in the Bible that the office of apostle, the gift of being an apostle, would come to a close. So my argument for cessationism begins with this clear biblical truth that at least one of the gifts has come to an end, and this should cause any casual cessationist or or, I'm sorry continuationist to begin to acknowledge that there was an enormous shift from the days of the early church to today even though the bible never declares directly that it would take place secondly we believe that prophecy has ceased for at least two reasons one reason is first corinthians chapter 3 verse 8 tells us at some point it's going to it says to us love never ends but as for prophecies they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Secondly, the the New Testament role of prophet was to serve as a partner to the the apostles to build the foundation of the church. Earlier I referenced Ephesians 2.20. Here's what it says. 
It was the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. As we saw earlier, New Testament prophecy was exactly the same as Old Testament prophecy, and it was God giving direct revelation, which was to be transferred to the people. So it stands to reason that as God finished pouring out the foundation of his church with the apostles, he also finished pouring out with the prophets. He drew the ministry of the prophets to a close, just as he drew the ministry of the apostles to a close. So here's the third thing. We believe that speaking in tongues has ceased. As we saw earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that it would eventually. However, we can also lean on a few other arguments that are important bits of information to help us see how the Bible is pretty clear the gift is going to come to an end. First of all, it's important to say that the gift of speaking in tongues, the practice of it actually taking place, is only mentioned in two books in the New Testament. It is only mentioned in the book of Acts, and it is mentioned again in the book of 1 Corinthians. This was not seemingly a common New Testament occurrence. We see that it took place four times in the book of Acts. Each time it was given so that it might affirm the fact that a new people group has experienced for the very first time the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then around the year 50, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians to correct their abuses of the gift of speaking in tongues. And after that, in none of the other letters that Paul ever wrote, there are nine that come after this book, none of them ever even mention the gift of speaking in tongues. And of all the other writers of the New Testament, none of them ever speak about the gift of speaking speaking in tongues. This has led some to speculate that even during the early stages of the church, even during the apostolic era, even during the time of Paul's own ministry, this particular gift was already rapidly coming to a close as the gospel spread across the known world. Augustine, writing in the late 300s, said this. He was one of the early church fathers. Steve just quoted him about 30 minutes ago. It says, In the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell upon those who believed. And they spoke with tongues, which they had not learned, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time, for they were behooved to be that betoking of the Holy Spirit in all tongues. Now, I know that's a weird word. Basically, what he's saying is, it came upon them the desire and the ability to speak in other languages, so that they could show the gospel of God was designed to run through all languages all over the whole earth. That's the purpose. And then he says, this thing was done for the betoking, and it passed away. In other words, this happened because the Spirit came on them, but now it's gone. This is in the very early stages of the church, and he says that is ceased. Even the church fathers would recognize that the gift of tongues was not something that was active during their day. Tom Schreiner says it in his book This Way in Spiritual Gifts. He says, I think it's significant that the great teachers whom God has used to bring about the Protestant Reformation were all cessationists. They would have loved to see signs and wonders and miracles like they were in the, the, like they were in the apostolic age, but they were cessationists because of their understanding of the Scripture. We must rely on the Scripture to make our arguments. However, I want to make one more argument that is historical in nature. The historical argument is a major problem for those who reject the uh, cessationist framework. What happened to these gifts for 1,900 years? Where did they go? 
Why weren't people using them? If, in fact, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which we call the sign gifts, were continuing, why were they not operating during that entire intermediate period between about the year 70 to about the year 1907? Why was nothing taking place during those centuries? Were there no saved people? Were they just ignoring the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. In response to this statement of fact, continuationists will often respond with the argument that, well, millions of people who experience these things can't be wrong. And I would say that is a terrible argument because if that's the case, then what about the Roman Catholics and the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Hindus and the Buddhists who could all use that exact same argument and say, well, I've experienced my religion and I believe it's genuine because how could a billion people be wrong? We don't use our personal or even our collective experience to define or qualify what is true or right or good. We use the scripture. Now, I know that this is just the beginning of a longer conversation, but I hope everything that we've considered in these six kind of rooms in this hall of incredible spiritual closets has been helpful to you so that it might set a framework for which you can think through the gifts of the spirit. But I'm hoping you have questions. I hope this creates a dialogue. For now, we're going to close, and this will be the end of our uh, sermons for this morning. Let me just close it in a word of prayer.